Lord, we do thank you for the revelation of yourself that you have given us in Jesus. Help us to see him now clearly in your word. Help us to see just a bit of your glory. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to the end of the chapter. Uh, This passage is a puzzle for many readers. One pastor, you all know, said it leaves many readers in a fog. Oh boy, that's what I want on Sunday morning, a fog. In fact, a gifted New Testament scholar in the course of a deep study of this text said, we now approach what could be called the Mount Everest of Pauline texts as far as difficulty is concerned. Or should we rather call it the Sphinx among texts, since its difficulty lies in its enigmatic quality? Nothing like a good Bible difficulty to wake you up on Sunday morning. So let's read this Mount Everest. We'll, we'll open with reading this, this Sphinx of a text. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if, it, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is a lot going on in these verses. And not all of it is immediately clear, even to very seasoned Bible readers. All the veil stuff especially ties people up in knots. And it's easy to make bad assumptions if you aren't reading very closely. Translators also. Translators have a field day with this one. You will notice a great variety in your, if you scan the English options. If you were reading something other than the ESV, you might have thought maybe this is very different than what Pastor Jeremiah is reading. Now, I say all this at the beginning just to make this point. This need not worry or surprise us. There are some parts of the Bible that are harder than others. And in fact, this is a biblical teaching. After all, Peter said that some of the things Paul wrote are difficult to understand. Some parts of the Bible are harder than others to interpret, to translate, to apply. This shouldn't worry us or prevent us from reading the Bible individually. 
We can trust the Spirit to guide us and make our study fruitful. His Word will not return void even when we don't understand everything. And actually, we don't even fully understand the easy passages because even the easy passages are God's Word, and God's Word is inexhaustible in its depth. And by and large, the problem passages are few and far between. Yes, we run into them occasionally, and we won't always get everything, but that's okay. It's okay if you and a lot of really other smart people are confused about a passage. That being said, we don't want to miss out on what is here in this text this morning. Because glorious things are spoken of in these 12 verses. Literally, glorious things, because this passage is all about glory. Thirteen times in the course of ten verses, Paul uses the word glory. Unfortunately for us, even though there are many puzzles in the particulars, the main point of this passage is wonderfully clear. Everyone gets it. Paul makes one simple overarching point. The new covenant has more glory than the old. The new covenant that Jesus brings is more glorious than the old covenant that God made with the people uh, when they came out of Egypt by Moses. Paul makes and defends that point in, in the first half of the text in verses 7 through 11. And then in verses 12 through 18, he applies that idea. He applies that point. The new covenant has more glory than the old covenant. So we're going to spend, here's the roadmap for the sermon. We're going to spend the first part of our time looking at how Paul defends this claim in verses 7 through 11. Why is the ministry of Jesus more glorious than the ministry of Moses? Then we're going to back up and we're going to ask, what is this glory talk all about? What was the glory of the old covenant? What is the glory of the new covenant? And for that, we'll look back into the Old Testament, where Paul is citing and alluding to. We'll spend time in Exodus 33 through 34, get a handle on what's going on there. And then finally, we'll consider the back half of our text, how we ought to respond to the surpassing glory of the new covenant in verses 12 through 18. So you can map the sermon with with three questions, if you will. Why is the new covenant more glorious than the old covenant? Verses 7 through 11. What is this glory that we're talking about, Exodus 33 and 34? And how should we respond to the new covenant's glory, verses 12 through 18 of our passage? So let's get right into it. Our first question, why? Why is the new covenant more glorious than the old covenant, verses 7 through 11? We'll read them again. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." The new covenant must have more glory than the old. The new covenant that Jesus brings must have more glory than the covenant of Moses. That's the point of the rhetorical question, verses 7 and 8. Of course, of course, this new ministry will come with more glory than what came before. And Paul explains why. He explains why by the way he talks about both covenants, by by the way he labels them. There are three contrasts that Paul sets up in these first five verses. 
These contrasts sum up why the new covenant is more glorious. It, it, it must be more glorious than the old. So look with me. The, the, the first comparison between the covenants is in verses 7 through 8. The old covenant was a ministry of death, and the new covenant is a ministry of the Spirit. As we saw in verse 6 last week, the Spirit gives life. So we've got this contrast between death and the Spirit. The old covenant, the old ministry is a ministry of death. And last week we saw that there were kind of two ways that this is true. And the first way that the old covenant is a ministry of death, as a refresher, is implied. It's assumed in our passage, but Paul clearly teaches it elsewhere. He, he expounds on this idea. The old covenant was not meant to be a life-giving covenant. The covenant with Israel was not meant to be a life-giving, a salvation-giving covenant. It did not impart the Spirit. The Spirit was a gift on the basis of the New Covenant, as you saw in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It does not mean people did not receive the gift of the Spirit in Old Testament times, but it was not on the basis of keeping to the Mosaic Covenant. It was not how people received the Spirit. As Paul says in Galatians rather sharply, O foolish Galatians, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, by keeping to the Old Covenant, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, no, you didn't receive the Spirit by works of the law. You didn't receive the Spirit by keeping to the old covenant. You did not receive spiritual life. You did not receive eternal life. You did not receive this by holding on to the old covenant. In fact, Moses said in the climactic address of the old covenant, the book of Deuteronomy, in his final address, Moses said, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. That might seem like an odd image at the end of that verse, but circumcision was a physical sign of being in covenant with God. And the command there to circumcise the heart was a command for the people to be changed inwardly, to actually think and feel a certain way, to truly love and desire to obey God. And after giving this command, he tells them what God wants of them, and he, he gives this command, circumcise your heart. Moses spends the rest of Deuteronomy laying out the particulars of the law. He, he spends the rest of the book expositing the law. He gives the stipulations of the Old Covenant. But then curiously, right near the end of the book, we read, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. 
After laying out the covenant, Moses also says he knows. He knows the people would not obey the covenant, that they couldn't. Can you imagine? I finished preaching, or Paul finished preaching, and we said, what's the point? You guys aren't even going to listen to any of this anyway, right? That's, that's how Moses ends. He knows they would not obey. He knows they will turn aside. They're going to experience the curses. They're rebellious and stubborn. He knows even with all the experiences they've had, even with the old covenant itself, they literally had it on stone, kept in a tabernacle where God would specially manifest his presence. Even with that old covenant in their possession, they would not obey. That's why even back in Deuteronomy, Moses looked forward to a new covenant. He didn't use that term, but he looked forward to a time after the people had failed, after his death, after they had failed, after they saw that they couldn't obey the old covenant, when God would then restore them. Moses said, Moses prophesied, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Moses prophesied. He looked forward and saw that God would do what the old covenant could not do. He would give them a new heart so that they would actually love the Lord. So because the old covenant could not change hearts and was not designed to, it could actually be an agent of death. For anyone who looked on it and relied on it to save them, to make them right with God, to actually make them love and trust God, to give them standing before the Lord, they would find no standing because it wasn't designed to do that. The law could not give you a new heart. You know, kitty, kitty pool, pool toys uh, that uh, float, they often have a yellow sticker on the outside of them. That yellow sticker says, this is not a life-saving device. Do not leave your child unattended while in use. This toy could kill your kid if you trust it to save their life. The old covenant could have come with a big yellow warning sticker. This is not a life-saving covenant. Do not put your hope in your ability to obey. Second comparison. The second comparison that Paul makes between the covenants in our passage is there in verse 9. The old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. The new is a ministry of righteousness. In other words, under the old covenant, you could not be righteous before God. This was the second way that the Old Covenant could be considered a covenant of death. Because the Old Covenant contained the law. It revealed God's moral standards. It had a condemning function. It exposes our sinfulness. As Paul says in Romans, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight because through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law, the old covenant, it shows us our sinfulness and it pronounces a sentence of guilty upon us because we are evil. If we weren't evil, if we didn't have a sin nature, then the law wouldn't be a problem. But because we are all sinners, we are all slaves to our sin, the law stands over us and it says, see, liar, see, thief, see, adulterer, see, murderer, see, idolater. So the old covenant condemns. It pronounces judgment against us. And that helps us understand what Paul means when he says the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness. Right? Righteousness in the context. It's the opposite of condemnation. Thus, Paul means the new covenant is a ministry by which we can be pronounced 
righteous before God, by which we can have that standing, that status. It's the juxtaposition. Condemnation on the one side, righteousness on the other. The old covenant condemns us. The new covenant righteousnessifies us or justifies us. The new covenant is the basis by which we stand before God, forgiven, acquitted, and righteous, positively righteous in his eyes, as Paul continues in the same Romans passage. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In the new covenant, through Christ Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins and declared righteous before God. Not on the the basis of our ability to keep to the law, to do any particular works, but based on the gift of righteousness that Jesus gives, based on the righteousness that he earned. We're justified as a gift. We're acquitted on the merit of another. Our sin debt is paid for us. Third comparison. Third comparison. That both of these realities, that the old covenant was a ministry of death and that it was a ministry of condemnation, lead together into the third comparison, which is seen clearly in verse 11. The old covenant was temporary. The new covenant is permanent. Because the old covenant was not designed to give life or justify God's people, it was never designed to be a permanent arrangement by which the people related to God. The old covenant was built with planned obsolescence. It was designed knowing it was going away. That's the main, in fact, this is the main pejorative negative way that Paul refers to the old covenant in this passage. It's, it's hard, harder to see in the ESV, but arguably four times. In verse 7, 11, 12, 13, he calls the old covenant that which is being brought to an end. And that phrase is all one word in Greek. It's something nullified, made ineffective, non-operative. Paul calls the old covenant the nullified thing. Or in smoother English, that which is being brought to to an end. And as we saw in Deuteronomy, Moses anticipated, even back then, a greater work of salvation, something more than the giving of the law, something more than an external law. Moses anticipated the new covenant. Even as he gave the law, Moses looked forward to when the Lord would change the hearts of his people, write the law on their hearts. So the new covenant anticipated, even back in the old covenant. That's the logic that the author of Hebrews picks up when he comments If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. In other words, there would have been no prophetic hope about a new covenant if the old covenant could do everything necessary for the salvation of God's people. It was temporary from the beginning. Elsewhere, Paul compares the law to a custodian, a nanny that takes care of a child before it's fully grown. In Galatians, he writes, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We're no longer under the old covenant because Christ came with the new. And the new covenant, precisely because it is not deficient in the ways the old covenant was, it actually saves spiritually dead people. It actually justifies sinful people. Because it can do those things, it's permanent. It will last forever. So because the new covenant is life-giving, it is justifying, it is permanent, it 
must necessarily have more glory than the Old Covenant. So much so that in verse 10, the Old Covenant's glory is said to be no glory in comparison. Or the the New Covenant's glory ends the Old Covenant's glory because the New Covenant's glory surpasses it. It outshines it. So now there is no glory in the Old Covenant ministry. But now now we've come to the second part of our our sermon. we, We need to back up. If Paul's main point is that the the new covenant has more glory than the old covenant, then in order to really understand that, we have to know what is the glory that Paul's talking about. What is the old glory that is surpassed in the new covenant? Because the old covenant had glory. Paul says it had glory. So, So what was it? And if the new covenant has more glory, we won't understand what the new covenant has more of until we understand what the old covenant had. What is the glory? What is the glory of the Old Covenant? If we don't answer this question correctly, the rest of the text will be confusing. So first of all, let's eliminate a wrong answer. The glory of the Old Covenant was not Moses' shining face. But wait, doesn't Paul say Moses' shining face? Yes, indeed. But Moses' shining face was evidence of the glory of the old covenant it was it was a symbol of the glory of the old covenant it was it was a token of the glory of the old covenant but it was not the glory of the old covenant paul's point wasn't look how glorious the old covenant was moses's face was shiny like, that's pretty glorious that, that's that's not his point if we want to understand the glory that paul's talking about we need to go back and read the account in exodus where moses's face shines we heard it earlier in the service let's look once more you don't have to turn there i'll read it it's found at the end of exodus 34 When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. A few observations about this passage will help us understand why Paul cites it in 2 Corinthians. The first is, the shining face of Moses did not happen the first times that Moses went up the mountain. Moses went up at least two previous times. He talked with God, and then he came back down and he talked with the people. But there was no shining face. This is not the first time Moses comes down from the mountain after having spoken with God. But this is the first time his face is shining. So why now? This symbol, this physical effect of the glory of the old covenant happened in response to something. What was different about Moses' most recent trip up the mountain? Well, if we look at the context of Exodus 34, we'll get our answer and we'll notice a, a key word. The previous time Moses came down was the golden calf incident. In fact, that's what all of Exodus 32 and 34, through 34 is about. Right? You, you remember, you have the people's idolatry, the subsequent fallout, and we won't recap the whole episode. But after all of that, Moses makes a special request of God to encourage his own heart for the journey ahead. He's wearied. 
And he asked God for something. We read just before Moses' shining face in Exodus 33. Moses asked God, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. The Lord said, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Moses asks to see God's glory. Key word. And God says, yes, I will show you my glory. Back to Exodus 33. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Notice that God equates his glory with his goodness. God says, I will make my goodness pass by, and then later he refers to that as while my glory passes by. God equates his glory and his goodness here. And there he he also equates his goodness with his name, his character, particularly his graciousness and his mercy. As Moses puts it, God's ways. I will reveal my glory to you. I will show you who I am, God says. The one who I am is good, gracious, merciful. I will give you a token of my character and my person. The passage continues into Exodus 34, and God makes good on the promise. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. God reveals himself to Moses in a special, visible way. Moses has already had visible manifestations, but there's something special, unique here. He walks before Moses some sort of visual manifestation. He's partly covered. Moses isn't allowed to see an uh, unmediated vision of God as the way he puts it. He's not allowed to see his face, but God does proclaim his own name as he passes. He reveals his character. He reveals his goodness, his glory to Moses. He is a God who is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He is just too. He does not simply ignore or clear the guilty, but the accent is on his free, sovereign display of mercy to his people. And it is only after this experience, this proclamation of God's name, God affirming his character in this special way to Moses that was described as seeing God's glory, that Moses' face shines. And Paul the Apostle, reading this text from Exodus, is able to comment that the Old Covenant came with glory. 
When you read the old, when you read Exodus, you see that the glory of the old covenant wasn't Moses' shining face. That, that was just a souvenir of the glory. The glory of the Old Testament was the revelation, the partial revelation of God's goodness, his character. It was that special revelation of God's character that caused Moses' face to shine. And that was what was so glorious about the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God did make himself known, at least in part. He did reveal that he was gracious and merciful. He did display his sovereign freedom and justice. God showed who he was in the Old Covenant. That was the glory of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant revealed God's person, his character. And Paul says in verse 7 of our passage, the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to the end, which was being brought to an end. He isn't talking about Moses' shining face fading away. In fact, Exodus doesn't actually say that the shine from Moses' face faded away. More on that in a minute. The main point is that the old covenant glory of which Moses' shining face was a token, that was going away. That was being nullified. But if the old covenant's glory was a revelation of God's glory, how can God's glory be later described as being no glory? Because of a greater revelation of that same glory. No longer would the old covenant be the only revelation of God's glory, God's goodness, his mercy. The fuller revelation of those same things made the previous revelation obsolete, the previous covenant obsolete. In the new covenant, God's glory is on greater display. For in Christ Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. Jesus is a much fuller revelation of the person and character and goodness of God than you find in the Mosaic covenant. In fact, the old covenant, as we've already heard, looked forward to Jesus. As Jesus himself said, quoted in our New Testament reading, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is the glory that comes from God because he is literally God in the flesh. And he reveals more perfectly, more fully, all of God's nature and character particularly his mercy and graciousness. Jesus, in his first coming, came not to condemn, but to save. He came to offer himself as a willing sacrifice. He came to lay down his life, to take our sins upon himself, to suffer on his people's behalf. In Jesus, we see God's mercy, his kindness on full display. Jesus shows you so clearly God is merciful to you in your sin. He offers his life, the life of his son, to save yours. God is loving toward you. Jesus sends the Spirit to fix your heart, to open your eyes to see and love God. And so enjoy all the wonderful things that God has planned for his people. Jesus reveals the goodness and mercy and grace of God. Jesus reveals the glory of God. You get to know God. You get to know him as kind Father because of Jesus, because of the ministry of the new covenant. So finally, back to 2 Corinthians then. How do we respond then? How do we respond to all that? How do we respond to the new covenant's greater glory? How shall we respond to Jesus' full revelation of God the Father? Our answers in verses 12 through 18. There, There are at least three answers. At least three answers to the question how we should respond to the more glorious new covenant in verses 12 through 18. But first, we will need to unpack just a little the whole veiling issue. Let's look again at verses 12 and 13. 
Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. A lot of people read this like Moses was covering his face in order to hide a fading light. But why Moses would want to hide that is not really clear. In that case, people tend to read that as Paul saying, Moses was trying to hide the impermanent nature of the Old Covenant. I don't think Moses was trying to hide the fact that the Old Covenant was impermanent. As you saw in Deuteronomy, he looked forward to a new covenant. He looked forward to a greater covenant because he knew they wouldn't obey the Old Covenant. I think there's a better way of taking verse 12. Actually, as we already saw, Exodus doesn't actually say that the shining face ever faded. And it isn't necessarily our final say in any interpretive question, but most Jewish sources, most ancient traditions about this text say that Moses' shining face continued till the day he died. And actually, if you don't assume that his shining face faded, when you read Exodus 34, it sounds more like it continued. Whenever he went in before the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out and told the people what he was commanded, the people would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining, And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. So the text indicates that Moses was only unveiled, seemingly perpetually after this, when he was talking with God and immediately after when he was relaying God's word to the people. And then at all other times, he was keeping himself veiled. Moses let them see his shining face when he was speaking on behalf of God, but then he would cover his face for normal day-to-day interactions. Exodus doesn't say anything about the face shining, the shining fading, uh, nor does it even really give us uh, an explicit motivation for why Moses covered his face at all. Paul tells us his motivation in verse 13 of our text. He covered his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to the, an end. Again, that phrase is, is one big word in Greek, the nullified, the nullified thing. The nullified thing is the old covenant. Moses did not want them to gaze to or until the end of the old covenant. He didn't want them gazing at that. And notice that word gaze. The ESV is not just being poetic by using gaze instead of see or look at. Gaze is a really good, it's a very thoughtful translation. The Greek word means much more than just see or look at, to perceive. To gaze is to stare intently, steadily, not taking your eyes off. Your attention is fixed and you don't look away. Moses didn't want the people gazing, staring, sucked into his glowing face. And in fact, the the Greek behind that language in the verse of outcome could also just mean until the end. In fact, it's also a normal Greek idiom for saying forever or completely or even excessively in some contexts. So the sense of verse 12 is probably Moses covered his face so the people wouldn't obsessively gaze at the glory of the Old Covenant until the end. It's hyperbole. Like if Moses didn't cover his face, the people would be obsessed with the glow and look at it forever. Moses wanted to hide his face so that the people wouldn't fawn over a token of glory instead of the real glory that the Old Covenant was pointing to, Christ. We, we know the impulse. It's buried deep within all of us to obsess over tokens, relics, souvenirs of glory instead of real glory. It's one of the ways the Old Covenant was a ministry of death. The people obsessed over the law, trying to find righteousness in it, in love with the glory of the law, blind to the glory of Christ. 
Moses didn't want the people falling in love with a lesser glory that would distract them from the ultimate glory that would be revealed in the new covenant in Christ. That's why verse 14 opens with but. But their minds were hardened. In other words, this situation happened to Moses' disgust, right? Moses failed in that sense. His goal was for them not to gaze excessively into the fading old covenant, not to view it as the be-all and end-all, but their minds were hardened. The people did exactly that, as Paul says of his people, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They sought to establish a righteousness of their own, apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, based on the law, based on the old covenant. Their hardened minds made them slip into the very thing Moses didn't want them to slip into, an obsession with a a lesser glory, an obsession with the old covenant that would make them miss the new. As Paul continues in verse 14, for to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 14 is probably the trickiest of all. Translators do their best. I tend to prefer the King James here because it doesn't do as much interpretive forcing. But in any case, the main point is now there's something over their hearts. It's a play on words. Now their hearts are covered so that when they read the Old Covenant, they cannot see the truth. They cannot see its impermanent nature. That's the truth that Paul's been talking about this whole time. They cannot see that it points to Jesus. It was meant to go away. Instead, they see in it their only hope for righteousness. They see in it, this is what we got to obey in our own strength to stand before God. The final clause of verse 14, I think, is better taken as the, that the, the truth that remains covered is that through Christ, the old covenant is nullified, right? It's that same phrase, is taken away, that same Greek word that we've already seen three times, nullified. Most readers and commentators agree. It's referring not to the veil, which the vague ESV might make it seem like it's referring to the veil at the end of verse 14, but it's the old covenant. That's what Christ does away with. That's what he takes away. That's what he nullifies. When people read the Old Covenant, they do not see, they do not understand that Christ has nullified it, that he has fulfilled it. They read it and they want to find in it a revelation of God in their own keeping of the Old Covenant. They want to find all their glory and their ability to hold to it. They are blinded to Christ's fulfillment of it, blinded to its obsolescence now. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 15, to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When they read Moses, a.k.a. the law, the Pentateuch, when they read the documents of the Old Covenant, they are blinded to its fulfillment and thus nullification in Christ. But, Paul says in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, when one believes in Jesus, when one looks at Jesus, this is actually a play on on the Exodus language, when Moses would turn to the Lord and remove the veil, when you turn to the Lord, when you turn to Jesus, you get to pull the veil down. You get to see. You're allowed to see the futility of the old covenant. You're allowed to see its fadingness. You're allowed to see that it was not an abiding glory. We are freed from trying to find our righteousness in it, freed from staring excessively into an inferior glory. That's why the veil being removed in verse 16 leads right into the Spirit, granting freedom in verse 17. Now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He says, Jesus offers you freedom. Freedom. Freedom from endlessly and hopelessly trying to justify yourself from your sins. Freedom from trying to futilely fight to suppress the looming reality of your own death. 
You are going to die, and nothing you can do in this life will stop it. And you are going to be judged, and no work that you can offer up will make up for your failings and your wrongs, for your sins. But Jesus offers you the Spirit of God, a new heart, and confidence that you will be raised from the dead and welcomed into God's kingdom. Freedom. In the new covenant, there is freedom. When we turn to Jesus and believe in him, he lets us see the old covenant for what it is. And he frees us from being enslaved to the law, from gazing at it obsessively. He lets us take our eyes off the law and shift our gaze to God himself, seeing God in a way that we never would have if we just kept staring at the law, if we just kept trying to find our righteousness and our ability to obey. Instead, we get to see all of God's mercy and goodness and his grace fulfilled, poured out, actualized, not just promised, but given. You'll never find God's grace in your ability to hold to the law, but if you look to Christ, you'll see it. You'll experience it. So the first way, the first way that we respond to the new covenant's glory is to enjoy the freedom that comes from it. In other words, we stop trying to find our righteousness and our peace and our hope and our ability to do works of the law. We stop looking obsessively to the law to justify us. Stop trying to find your peace in something that you can do, something that you can produce, something that you do in obedience to the law. Look at Jesus and be free. A second and related way that we respond to the new covenant's glory is back in the fact that Paul sets up a contrast in verses 12 through 13. Moses had to hide his face so people wouldn't obsess over it. But instead of that, Paul says he can be bold. We can speak boldly about Jesus and the new covenant because we don't have to worry about being distracted from the real substance of glory. Moses had to worry about people falling in love with a lesser glory. It's exactly what happened. With the new covenant, we can be bold. We don't have to worry about people taking the new covenant too far. You can never take Jesus too far. People can never look at Jesus too much. We don't have to worry about too much Jesus. Your friends and your family can never be harmed by you being about Jesus. We can be bold, excessive with the Lord in our speech and in our lives. You know how people say, like, oh, you take this religious stuff too seriously. I'm sure friends and family have said that to some of you. You take this all too seriously. You can't say that about Jesus. You can't take Jesus a little too seriously. You could say that about keeping kosher. You can say that about any other form of external righteousness. You're taking this whole thing a little too far. But you can't say that about Jesus. You can never take Jesus too far. You can never love Jesus to your detriment. You can never be public about your faith in Jesus, to your detriment, not your ultimate detriment. You will never regret talking about him. You will never regret being publicly allied to Jesus, who is the only hope for any of your neighbors and friends to find the same freedom you have. Be bold about Jesus. Be free in your speech about Jesus. And finally, this leads us to the last way that we should respond to the new covenant's glory. We should keep looking at Jesus ourselves. The glory of God is transforming. Look at verse 18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
we all with unveiled, uncovered. Right? Not just in contrast to Moses' veiled face after the fact, but Moses' covered face when God revealed his glory. You remember, when Moses was up on the mountain, he wasn't allowed to look at the face of God. There was a partial covering. The glory was obscured. But unlike Moses, we are allowed an unmediated look at the risen, living Lord. We can look directly at Jesus, literally when he returns, but also now in all his beauty, in Scripture, in, in the Word. We get to look at Jesus, and, we get to look at, and as we look at Jesus, we will be transformed. And then we see Jesus as we see him in his Word. You know, Paul said to the Galatians, you know, Jesus Christ was portrayed publicly. He was visible to you crucified. He used his seeing language. But the Galatians weren't there for the crucifixion. They didn't see Jesus crucified. What did Paul mean then? In the preaching, in, in, in the Word. They, they got to see and experience Christ in the Word. You can look at Jesus now revealed to you in the Word. You can continue to look at him. You can gaze intently at him, and it's okay. It's, you never can be distracted by Christ to your detriment. Christ is the substance. You're not going to miss anything. You're not going to miss anything in this life by looking at Jesus because he is the glory of God. Everyone wants glory. Everyone wants to be better than what they are, to have something better than what they are. But Jesus will literally make you better than you, you can imagine from glory to glory. Looking at his glory doesn't just awe you. It isn't just satisfying. It makes you glorious. He shares his glory by showing his glory just like Moses, looking at God's glory literally changed him. It, it gave the, uh, a physical token. And that's a token meant to show you in part that if the old covenant experience of God's glory could do that, imagine what the new covenant experience will do. You get to see a much clearer picture of God than Moses got to see. Moses up on the mountains. Some of us think sometimes, oh, I wish I could wish I could see what the Israelites see. I wish I could see what Moses saw. You get to see more than what Moses got to see. You get to see a clearer picture. And if you keep looking, it's going to affect you. It's going to change you, both spiritually and physically, eventually. The more you look at Jesus, the more you confront him in Scripture, the more you will be changed to be like him in his moral beauty and goodness, gloriously so. And eventually, when Jesus returns, you will see what Moses only wished he could see at the time. You will stare into the face of God. And as John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That future vision, that future glimpse, that look is guaranteed to you now if you are a member of the new covenant. If you believe in Jesus, if you look to him in faith now, if you look at him in scripture now, you will be changed bit by bit the more you look at him in faith. And then one day you will get to see him face to face. One day you will get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you will be wholly transformed by that. The new covenant contains a greater revelation of God's glory. The new covenant actually gives life. It justifies and it will last forever. Because the new covenant is to be united to Jesus who grants eternal life, dies for your sins, and promises to raise you from the dead just as he is himself was raised. So, stop trying to justify yourself. Stop gazing obsessively into the law. Be bold about Jesus in your speech. Be bold in your witness. And keep looking at Jesus yourself and so be transformed into glory. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, we do thank you for the vision of yourself, the revelation of yourself that you have given us in your son, Jesus. And so I ask that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on him. Help us to look to Christ in faith. Help us not to be distracted or drawn away by other things that might hold our gaze. Help us to experience all the the wonders of the new covenant. And we do pray, we do long for the day when we would see Jesus face to face. We ask that that you would return, that that would be sooner rather than later. But as we wait for it, do sustain us by keeping our eyes on Christ and scripture until that day. We pray this all in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.